Hello! I hope you'll enjoy this recording and consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, my talks are offered entirely without charge and supported by donations only. Please feel invited to stop by dharmapunksnyc.com, that's spelled with an X, to check out a chapter from my book, Unsubscribe, which arrives November 2017. And thank you. Up until about uh, 500 years ago, of course, the dominant, well, maybe even 400 years ago, the dominant belief was that the Earth was in the absolute center of the universe. It's understandable, given that it certainly seems that way. It looks like the sun is circling around the Earth. Change in perspective led to a wholesale not just to the Renaissance and the amplifying or accent upon the agency of human beings, uh, it really changed the entire perspective on uh, the role of any higher power, the role of man and nature and so forth. Future, when people look back upon Probably the age up until the 1900, when Freud and William James wrote some of their seminal works, will people in the future will laugh that uh, there was a long period of time where people believed that thought was the epicenter of mental functioning, that thought was responsible for most behaviors, that thought played a uh, great uh, influence over how we act. And what has happened recently in the last, certainly the last 20 years of neuroscience, thanks to the development of functional fMRI scans, magnetic resonance imagery, uh, has been the ability to observe uh, the order of cognitive and pre-conscious events. And uh, due to a lot of overwhelming clinical research, the most dominant cognitive neuroscientists in the field, such as Ledoux and Gazaniga and Antonio Damasio and Ian McGilchrist and, and the rest, have shown that in fact, the bulk of, he, of behavioral impulses, choices, decisions are actually made unconsciously, pre-consciously, not governed by thought. And in fact, the idea is that thought, which is a largely left hemispheric or left brain event, what it does is it narrates what we've done, and adds a why we've done it, and in its uh, in this process, it creates the illusion, what's known as the post-dictive illusion, that thinking plays a central role in the choices and impulses and behaviors that we act upon. One of the most seminal works in this field was by Dan Wagner and Thalia Wheatley, the apparent mental causation paper that pretty much 
was the final nail in the coffin of conscious uh, causation. And what they showed was that we, um, when uh, actions and behaviors and impulses are experienced, what's going on is we actually are experiencing those, those impulses first pre-consciously, and then through this magic of the left hemisphere, the narrative brain, we flip or we swap the order of events so it looks like we think before we act. It takes about a tenth of a second for you to process any uh, incoming exteroceptive data from the outside world to work its way from the thalamus to the fast circuits and to come up with an impulse, fight, flee, connect, relax, get stressed out, be anxious, be confident, all those states, the reaching for the, the donut or the health food at Whole Foods or wherever you shop, etc. Those impulses take about a tenth of a second to be felt. It takes about a half a second for you to become consciously aware of what, uh, what your impulses are. So there's a four-tenth of a second discrepancy. So what happens is, is we stall awareness of the behavior and the action and place it shortly after the thought, which makes it appear to us like our thoughts are determining our choices and our behaviors. So this is pretty fucking important from a lot of, for a lot of reasons. Um, why do we do this? Why do we create this illusion that we have far more conscious control over our actions and behaviors and choices? Why is it that when the right orbital frontal makes almost all of our important decisions, which is pre-conscious part of the brain, we narrate and experience it as if we've made a decision to, to, to hold or fold? Uh, the reason I'm bringing that up is because a lot of the tests involved actually gambling. Um, it, we have this illusion for a number of reasons. One, of course, it makes us believe that we have far more agency in the world. It makes thought, which is what we tend to identify with, seem that it has a far more central role in determining our actions and our choices and our behaviors than it actually does. The left hemisphere is very optimistic by nature. Uh, and one of the reasons is, is because it believes that it plays such an important role in our experience, that it guides us, that it's the captain of the boat. In uh, another wonderful paper uh, by a bunch of uh, psychologists called Free to Punish, a Motivated Account of Free Will, um, by five clinical psychologists, they showed that the more people believe in free will and conscious control over their actions, the more they want to punish others for misdeeds. So the belief that people have free will, that almost all of our decisions are choices rather than 
emotionally guided behaviors that we then add a story onto gives us the free reign to punish and reward others and feel good about that process. In fact, uh, I've done uh, work in Rikers, part of the whole sober tip was going in and bringing meetings and meeting people and one of the things you quickly discover on an anecdotal level is that uh, so many of the inmates are incarcerated for years for crimes of passion, which is another word of, way of saying that they really didn't have any conscious control. They were under the, they were stressed out, anxious, frightened, fearful, under uh, the influence of narcotics, and they made decisions that were entirely motivated by fight, flight, freeze, and now we have imprisoned them under this sort of cultural mythos that they made decisions. So am I saying that consciousness plays no role whatsoever? Well, of course it does. There's a reason that consciousness came about, not just to narrate, to represent life in words and symbols to create a map of the world outside that represents it. And if you want to read more about this, the wonderful uh, book, The Master and Emissary by McGilchrist goes into exactly all of the functions of the left brain versus the right brain. But beyond this representational nature, thanks to the work of a, a great neurologist named Benjamin Labette, who uh, did these series of experiments where people would push buttons the moment they believed they had a conscious impulse. And he showed that while it takes a tenth of a second to have the impulse and a half a second to actually have the decision, so uh, literally four tenths of a second before they make the decision to push the button, you can already see that their finger is being activated to push it, even though they think they're making the decision. But interestingly, consciousness happens very often just before we f complete an action, a behavior. We actually push the button. So the impulse comes first, then consciousness, and then following through with the action. So what that means is consciousness occurred to stop us from acting on really shitty ideas. As Labatt said, we don't have free will, we have free won't. Which uh, uh, is very interesting, to say the least, because what it essentially tells us is that all of our impulses come about through emotionally guided or pre-conscious areas of the brain, such as the limbic structure, the amygdala, the hypothalamus, the striatum, and then, of course, the orbital frontal. All of these are pre-conscious. Sometimes it'll send an uh, impulse to fight or to flee or to dissociate, freeze. But the role of consciousness is to say, hey, wait a second, stop. Send me a second impulse. I don't want to act on this one. So it's kind of not that consciousness makes the actual, comes up with the plans. It's kind of like a CEO that sits 
in an office and says, I don't like this uh, marketing scheme, bring me another one. So consciousness, I guess, is kind of like Steve Jobs getting all the credit, but really all it's doing is saying, I don't want to do this, come up with something better. The latest theory of consciousness is, or one of the most, uh, the most attractive and recent was by Bernard Bars. It's called the global workspace theory. And like Daniel Dennett, he said that awareness is like a stage. And the stage is your awareness in total, everything that you're aware of. Um, the spotlight on the stage is your attention, where you focus your attention. That's guided by your left hemisphere. The actors on the stage are all the different impulses that you have. And all the actors in this drama are making up their own lines. You didn't decide them. And then finally, there's a director, which is consciousness. And that director can simply stop an actor from acting and point the spotlight on another actor, but it cannot come up with the actor's lines or behaviors. Does that help uh, explain it? This also explains why so many clinical studies have shown that consciousness is most triggered, the left hemisphere is most activated, when we're facing novel experiences. Things we've not done before, places we've never traveled before. You might notice that when you go on a vacation, time seems to pass at half the speed that it does when you're in your familiar routines at home. So when you're traveling, a week can feel like a significant period of time when you're at home, a week can feel like a blink of an eye. That's because you've got fully both bilateral hemispheres of the brain at the same time. It changes the way you process time. So um, the more unfamiliar an event, the more you push yourself to face unfamiliar experiences, the more you train your brain to have bilateral integration. That's worth knowing. In other words, when you leave your house, try a different way to walk to work or to uh, retro fitness. My, these days when it's freezing, my main venture of the day. Uh, it's worthwhile to continually push yourself to face novel tasks and new skills because it actually forces you to use consciousness in the way that it's most effective, which is rallying the different circuits and choosing which circuit is more appropriate. In the global workspace theory, Bernard Barge says that when all the circuits in the background reach an impasse <clears throat> or they're in conflict, that's when consciousness lights up, the spotlight becomes more apparent, and we decide to choose or integrate another process. So how do we know when we're not functioning, functioning in an optimal conscious manner? Uh, three ways. One, if when there's too much stress in life, the survival circuits become overly influential. We act out of rage or fear or impulses without overriding. So we have too little cognitive capabilities when we're under too much stress. When we're in anxiety, on the other hand, there's a tendency for conscious inner chatter 
to have far too important a role, which leads to self-consciousness, insomnia, all this obsessive ideations where we can't stop the spiral of thinking. So both too much and too little cognition can interfere with optimal functioning. There's really, in any given moment, three things that we could focus our attention on, not just our thinking, but interoception, which is how your body feels, and exteroception, which is all the events that are going on in the world around you. If there's too much cognition, then you lose awareness of your body, and you stop making emotionally informed decisions, and you start taking on too many things that you can handle. You start pushing yourself to do things that don't make you feel secure. You take on work that you're not capable of. On the other hand, if there's too little cognition, then what you'll do is act impulsively and make decisions or behaviors that you regret. Finally, also the inability to focus attention it stops us from being able to learn new tasks because attention is what activates all the different circuits and the basal ganglia, the narrative function, the right hemisphere to work together to fuel or to create a new circuit. And eventually, over time, that circuit becomes automatic. In other words, there was a time when, in your life when you didn't know how to tie your shoes, and that entire m movement was guided by consciousness. But after you did that enough, you used the circuits in the same way, guided by consciousness. Eventually, that mechanism or that process was entirely taken over by unconscious means. That's when consciousness is working well. It stays present just long enough, and then when we can do something, it stops paying attention. If you're always aware of yourself tying your shoes, you're probably wasting a lot of time in your life because you could be thinking about other stuff like what to order on Amazon. <laughs> <clears throat> so finally, how do we know when we have a, a well-functioning left hemisphere? One we can override panic. And we can do this, uh, we're going to do this in our meditation. We're going to, one, use the left hemisphere cognitive ability to pause, to stop, to hold off a thought or a behavior, and to open up to new possibilities or new impulses. So, one, the ability to pause, postpone, stall, take your time, do things slowly, is when your conscious brain is working at its best. We're also going to learn how to do this by using thought substitution. One of the wonderful uh, works by Dan Wagner was a book called White Bears, where he showed that when you're facing an obsessive thought, the most uh, crucial way to try to uh, essentially disconnect or put an obsessive thought and uh, uh, postpone it, put it aside, not focus on it, is not by trying not to think about it. That doesn't work. It actually makes you think more about the obsessive thought. But what you can do is switch the thought. So he, the, the test he did was he told people uh, to not think about white bears, polar bears. And he found that when he told them not to, they thought about them twice as much as people who were given permission to think about white bears. So clearly trying to oppress a thought doesn't work. 
But when he said, you can think about red Volkswagens, then nobody thought about white bears anymore. Likewise, you might find that if you got an earworm stuck in your head, for me, it's We Didn't Start the Fire by Billy Joel. <laughs> it's one of the cruelest, or simply having a wonderful Christmas time, which... <laughs> proves there'll never be time travel, as I said, because if there were, somebody would have gone back and stopped McCartney before he wrote that <laughs> horrible moment. <laughs> but if you want to get rid of an earworm, what you do is simply think of another song and repeat the other song in your mind, hopefully something not as horrific. So I always go to a uh, Clash song or to a song by any other group that I actually enjoy. Uh, two, we're looking to coordinate the bilateral hemisphere to develop new skills, and what that means is being able to maintain exteroception with interoception without having too much thinking, so we'll practice that. And then three, processing emotional experience without feeling the overwhelming urge to act out on an impulse or an emotional guided behavior. This doesn't mean that emotions are always wrong. In fact, so many times our emotions are guiding us, steering us, are very, very contain extremely valuable information. But sometimes emotional beliefs that are very old can keep us stuck in procrastination, avoiding growth, avoiding taking on new opportunities, or they can, act, uh, they can push us towards acting addictively rather than simply sitting with an emotion and processing it. So we're going to do all of those three in the meditation, and by the time you leave here, you'll have all upgraded your brain from brain 1.0 to 2.0, all at no cost whatsoever. So, find a comfortable seated position. Lovely. So just take a moment to close your eyes and let's start our practice as I like to do with three self-soothing breaths. So taking a nice, long, complete in-breath through the nose and while you do so, Lift your shoulders like you're trying to touch your ears if you like, and then keep them up there while you're holding your breath, and then breathe out through the mouth and drop the shoulders like they each are carrying heavy bags that you've just dropped, and you finally can just release. Okay. So let's do a second complete in-breath, and this time pull in the belly like you're trying to tighten your abdomen, holding it in, 
and then breathe out through the mouth and soften the belly. And from this point on, try to just breathe in and out from a really soft belly and really relaxed shoulders. And then the third in-breath, squinch the muscles in the face, make a really ugly pinched face that you hope nobody's looking at right now and just really squinch the nose, the forehead, the, around the eyes, lock the jaws and then breathe out and soften the face. So we've just worked on two different regions of the vagal vagus nerve and that is a way to speak to pre-conscious structures in the limbic region. Basically, you're speaking uh, amygdala, and you're telling your amygdala that you're okay now, you're safe. So, bring to mind something that's been really stressful, a challenge you're facing that feels overwhelming, something that feels daunting, something that creates a sense of uh, too much to handle, stress. And just hold that image in your mind at first, and what we're going to do is just relax the body beneath it. So I hold this topic that's daunting in your mind. Keep the shoulders relaxed. Keep your belly relaxed. And now what we're going to do is while we hold that task in mind, we're going to practice long exhalations, which is another way to reduce stress. So try to, while you hold this unwanted challenge, this unknown, this unresolved area of your life, just keep your exhalations really long. Breathing out as long as you can until over time we'll feel that the impulse to throw in the towel or the need to solve or figure out everything immediately, the tension all begins to subtly dissipate. There's a myth that the more we think, the more we solve. But actually the first approach is to relax the breathing body, the shoulders, the belly, the face, and the lengthen your exhalations as long as you can. And then let whatever other issues you're facing enter and leave the mind, but keep in the foreground of your awareness the long, relaxed, smooth out-breath. So you're not repressing any thoughts, any issues, but you're just 
creating a new way to be with, to pause, And just stay with the breath, keeping it in the foreground. In this practice, you don't need to push anything away. You just always keep an awareness of whether you're breathing in or out and making the out very long and smooth.
So at this point, bring to mind something else that's distressing, something that is irritating, a worry, just something that's been a repetitive visitor in your mind. Just allow it to arise. Hold something that represents it, an image of a person or something else indicative of the challenge, the irritating event, the worry, whatever it is. Keeping the out-breath long and then use your awareness to choose a skillful reflection to replace the worrying thought. So the Buddha listed ten skillful reflections. One, reflecting on people in your life that are available, that will always be there, whatever the result or outcome of any situation. Two, reflecting on impermanence, the fact that All conditions pass. Even this worry or concern will pass. Three, you can reflect on the shortness of life itself. Do you really want to spend your valuable time not knowing when death will occur? Do we want to give this much time to this worry? Is it worth this amount of attention? Four, bring up something really skillful that you're grateful for in your life, something that you do that brings you pride. There are six more, but That's good enough for now. Just practice bringing a skillful thought into your awareness and replacing a worry, something that's unresolved that you can't solve right now. And if your mind goes back to the original thought, just try another reflection. on something skillful that's true. Not a fantasy, but something that's true.
So at this point we're going to move on to another practice. At this point we're going to use consciousness to integrate the left and right brain. So we're going to do this by reducing inner chatter, but using consciousness to guide our awareness in a skillful way. So first what I'd like you to do is bring your awareness or your attention to the sensations that are going on in the front of your body. The breathing, inhalation, exhalation occurring in the chest or belly. Any sensations going on in the face, any tightness, subtle contraction around the eyes or mouth. Awareness of the throat. Bringing into awareness whether your belly feels relaxed and soft and the shoulders still feel relaxed and dropped away from the ears. Holding in awareness as many sensations from the front of your body as you can and then add into this awareness the sensations of contact with the cushion, the feel of clothing, the feeling of sitting on a cushion, the feeling of clothing on your skin. So aware of the sensations in the face, throat, the breathing in the chest, the tightness in the shoulders and belly, the contact with the ground. So this is interior awareness, interoception. Now I'd like you to widen your awareness even further, bringing in awareness of the sounds drifting in from the street, sound of my voice, the more we widen awareness, the more we're using the right brain to help pay attention in the process. So keeping as many present time sensations in consciousness, the sounds, the movement of the eyes, the breathing, the contact with the cushion, and now even the lights flickering behind your closed eyes. And try to relax into all of these ongoing sensations like you're in a virtual reality machine letting you know what it's like to be alive in this moment.
So for our last tool in this meditation, we're going to develop the ability to process emotional experiences without distraction or repression, just being with emotions. So I'd like you to again bring up a really disappointing event, something that you're still grappling with, Just hold something as a image that represents this experience, perhaps a, a loss of a relationship, a friendship, a loss in general, a setback in life. And if you don't feel any emotional response in your body, Just also ask yourself, how does it feel to not get what I want, to not get what I need? See if you can actually trigger the emotion or emotions associated with this experience. And then, while the question is there, or the image, or both, bring your awareness, the spotlight, into your body, and find the most clear muscle contraction in the front of your body, the slightest tightness in the belly, perhaps a feeling of hollowness or tightness in the chest, in the throat, or in the face, and just stay with that sensation, softening around it by keeping the breath really long in the exhalation, and just greeting that sensation with kindness. I feel this pain, this sadness, this disappointment. Using your conscious ability to guide awareness, but now using it to guide awareness to stay with feelings as they arise. If you can't feel any somatic, physical response, then bring up another event or change the questions you're asking yourself. 
How does it feel to be lonely? How does it feel to be missing someone I care about? And just be able to create a safe container for all that you need to feel without any suppression. Softening the muscles around the area that gets tight. And before we end this meditation, bring to mind an image of a friend or person that you believe you could share this feeling or any emotional experience with safely without being judged or criticized, without being shamed or rebuked. Somebody who can create another safe container for how you feel. To process emotional events, we have to feel them and we have to express them. So in a moment, I'm going to ring the bell, and you're encouraged as part of bringing in additional awareness of the world around you through sight, to take a moment and first look at the ground in front of you and integrate light and color into awareness of your body so that you don't just allow sight to push your embodied awareness into the background. 